Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, we're unlocking the secrets of the Anglo-Saxons with Kat Jarman and her new book, The Bone Chests. Dr. Kat Jarman is the best-selling author of River Kings, the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. She's the editor of British Archaeology magazine and a bioarchaeologist and field archaeologist specialising in the Viking Age and Rapa Nui. In her work, she uses forensic techniques like isotope analysis, carbon dating and DNA analysis on human remains to untangle the experience of past peoples from broader historical narratives. She co-hosts the podcast The Rabbit Hole Detectives, with Richard Coles and Charles Spencer, and is a broadcaster who regularly contributes to TV documentaries as a presenter and historical consultant. And today we're here to talk about Kat's latest book, which is The Bone Chests, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons. Kat, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. First of all, let's talk about the bone chests in this story. They are going to be attacked by the parliamentarians during the Civil War. But before that, let's go back to shortly before December 1642. What were the bone chests? Yeah, so the bone chests, which uh, in fact, some of them, as as we'll hear later on, I'm sure are still there today. At that point, there were 10 uh, individual chests, and these were placed high up on screens in the presbytery of Winchester Cathedral. And they contain some of the most illustrious royals, kings and queens, bishops from going all the way back to the early medieval period. And at that point in the 1600s, those bones, those remains had already been in the cathedral for hundreds of years, since, well, pretty much since, more or less since it was built. And other of those burials had been there right the way since the 7th century in the precursors to the cathedral. So these really were some really incredible remains that were placed high up to uh, try to protect them. And these were, they were really the remains of the people who were venerated as some of the most significant ancestors to the Kingdom of Wessex, and also then what would become England, essentially, because really Winchester is a huge part of the origin story of England itself. And obviously these early rulers, the people who created Wessex, were a huge big part of that themselves. And we'll talk about the importance of Winchester early on in the history of both Wessex and England in a minute. But at this point, 
1642. That's really all in the past. So why are the parliamentarians besieging Winchester at this point? So this is all part um, of the the civil war, really. So so the cathedral itself is at risk. All religious institutions are at risk at that point uh, in time. So so it's not surprising. It's not just the chests that they attack. So they they launched this attack in December 1642 as a part of a much wider campaign. And in fact, the entire contents of the cathedral are completely destroyed. So it's not just the chest, but it's clear from eyewitness accounts that they were specifically targeted as well. And so what happens on that day in the cathedral? So we have this amazing account, which was written down uh, only really a few weeks later on, that uh, the city, Winchester, had been attacked uh, a night or two before. So these parliamentarians had uh, entered the city gates, they started looting around. And in the morning, in the hours between nine and ten, all of a sudden, they burst through the, the great west gate, the cathedral doors, and they come through with drums beating, with torches lit, some of them even on horseback, just storming in. And the poor priests and, and the clergy can do very little to protect themselves, really. And then they just start this attack. And they are literally just destroying everything that they can find, starting with the objects. They're, they're stealing anything of value. And then they start on all the, the dead, all the tombs, until they eventually reach these chests. So they clamber up on these stone screens that are several metres high uh, inside the presbytery and uh, start to rifle through the chest, opening them, throwing some of these bones inside down to the floor. Other bones are thrown onto the uh, stained glass windows, using them essentially as missiles to shatter the glass. And some of the chests as well are smashed to the floor. But at this point, even though the destruction had been carried out for quite some while, apparently at this point, those who are looking just sort of think, well, no, this is, this is too much. And uh, some of the officers actually stop them, which is why some of the chests were allowed to remain. So the ones that were smashed at that point and their bones have been trampled and thrown through the windows. If you visit Winchester Cathedral now, you can see that the, um, the big stained glass window is a is a mosaic made up of lots of broken pieces from this time. What subsequently happens to the the remains of those chests and the remains of those kings? So we know that four of the chests certainly survived complete, and we've got still got those today in the cathedral. And the rest of the bones that they could find were clearly just gathered up and, and collected. And only a couple of years later, there are replacements chests. So if you do go to Winchester Cathedral today, if you walk down the nave into the choir and the presbytery, look up, you'll still see them in the same place. You'll see six of them, four being the originals and other two replacements that were made around about 1660. So clearly, whatever was, you know, whatever was lost but regathered was then pretty much just stuffed back in again. So in 2012, then, there's a project by scientists, by archaeologists to excavate those or to open these chests to see what the remains are and to identify them and sort them. Why did this come about? How does this How does this happen? Yes, that was a, a project that uh, was started in 2012. It's not one that I was personally involved in, but uh, it was really to try and look at those remains, look to see what was left in there. Now, we know that other people had opened them in the past. Uh, some antiquarians had done, uh, counted the bones. We've got these records of, of them trying to sort of match them to the names. Because what, what I didn't say is that on the outside of the chest are written or painted the names of those who are allegedly within them. And we also have other records suggesting there are even more individuals. So 
On the outside of the chest, there's 12 names. Other records uh, claim that another three, so 15 in total, should be inside. But of course, it's like with saints' relics in, in churches and things. Quite often, you know, when these have been tested, they they don't match the sort of uh, expected origins at all. And normally they are much later, things that have created in the Middle Ages. So part of the project really was, uh, their aim was to try and find out what was actually in there. How many people, were there 12 people, were there 15 people? Could we do anything now with modern science to actually prove it? And of course, this, this was then the time when really we were starting in, in our discipline to start to be able to use things like ancient DNA for the first time, really, properly to identify individuals. So that was their aim to try and see if they matched, if they matched in date, if they could work out how many and use any of those scientific methods to, to find out who, if they did match those people who were allegedly buried there. It turns out there's not just people in the chests as well. So why did they find the giraffe? <laughs> so the giraffe, yeah, the giraffe's a little, uh, really interesting little model, probably made of ivory. And uh, it's one of the quite unexpected ones. And it's currently on display. You can actually go to see uh, an exhibition called the Kings and Scribes Exhibitions in the uh, in the cathedral, which talks you through the history of, of the cathedral and also these chests and what was found in them. And so one, one remarkable little thing is this tiny little giraffe which nobody has any idea. It sort of looks similar. It's quite white, quite pale. It was probably once painted. So it looks a bit like a bone. And presumably when they were just sweeping things off the floor, they uh, missed, somebody mistook it for a bone or something like that. But we have no idea why it's there or where it dates from. So Winchester again then, why is it so significant both in the both Wessex and then subsequently the, the fledgling English state? So you have to trace Winchester's origins right the way back to the post-Roman period. It was, it was actually a Roman town, so it goes back further than that, quite, quite an important one as well. And it's important, I think, for a number of reasons, not least because of its location. It's in the southwest. It's on a, in an area where lots of transport routes uh, meet, quite near the coast, the south coast. So you've got all that trade that goes on uh, on the south coast and across the English Channel. So already in, in uh, Roman period, it was significant. And then in the post-Roman period, obviously, like like every, everywhere else in, in England, there is a bit of a, a, a lull in what happens, but we know that people were still using it. And then quite soon, these kingdoms, these early medieval or Anglo-Saxon kingdoms appear, and one of them is centred in the southwest. And before too long, Winchester emerges again as, as a big town, it has a church built there, at least from 650, which was quite early on, because that's really when Christianity is really just setting in properly in England uh, in the sort of 6th to 7th century. So we have this early church, and then it essentially becomes the most significant uh, city. So we don't, we don't really talk about capitals in the same way that we do now, but this becomes the political and religious centre of the Kingdom of Wessex. From that point on, Wessex just grows and grows. and we start in this point, sort of 7th century, uh, we have an awful lot of different kingdoms, far more than, than what we perhaps hear about later on. But eventually, all, a lot of the smaller ones drop away or they are subsumed within the larger ones. And Wessex is really one of the ones that, that really emerges as one of the most powerful kingdoms. That's really the history of it. So when we start to talk about England being created and, and sort of the idea of Anglo-Saxons, that's the term we first hear in the, in the 9th century, really, under uh, people like Alfred. 
this is all based in Wessex. So it's it comes from there, these sort of early kings uh, that are essentially the first kings of England have their origin in Wessex. And that really is the key to why Winchester is so important. And the cathedral itself, so the cathedral that we would see now, and indeed the one that was there in 1642, was of Norman origin, but that was built in the main on on an existing cathedral, or the remains of an existing cathedral, because at some point it collapsed. Um, So tell us something about the history of the cathedral. Yeah, so the current Norman Cathedral started to be built in um, 1079 and uh, it was completed in the 1090s or at least mostly completed in the 1090s. But at that point, uh, there's quite a complex history actually of the churches in, in Winchester. So it starts with this one simple church uh, around about 650 onwards. That later on develops to uh, a monastic community. So that becomes known as Old Minster at some point. And that becomes a very rich uh, Minster church, very wealthy, really sort of nicely designed. It grows very rapidly alongside the importance of, of Wessex and the whole city or town of Winchester. And that sort of seems um, seems enough, really, doesn't it? But uh, but then in 901, we have something quite uh, quite unusual happening, which is that there's a new foundation, a new monastery or Minster foundation uh, set up in Winchester. And it's set up by Edward the Elder, who was the son of Alfred. And he did that because he wanted a new church, a new sort of establishment for himself and his descendants, and also to sort of honour his, his memory of his, uh, his father and his, uh, his ancestors. But what's really so unusual is that he built it right next to Old Minster. So this one that becomes known as New Minster is literally right next door. So they take new land from, uh, takes all the land from Old Minster and create this new church. But Oldminster still is allowed to exist as well. So for quite some time, you have these two competing Minster churches literally right side by side. They're apparently so close that you could sort of reach out over and and touch walls of both of them at the same time. And they keep having uh, new sort of building regimes where they're improving and, uh, you know, building more and more towers, making them more and more... um, elaborate over time. And what's quite interesting in it is that the the bones, the remains um, of these early kings are being used as part of that whole scheme. So I mentioned earlier that um, that some of these bones had been there, not just from, you know, from the cathedral's origins, but actually from earlier as well. So some of them had been buried in or around Oldminster originally. Some were then moved to Newminster. In fact, Edward uh, moved initially the, the bones of his father, Alfred, and, and his family into Newminster as a sort of quite a powerful political tool. So these two continued until the Normans came along and, uh, and actually built it pretty much on top of what was uh, Newminster that was then uh, torn down. And then eventually Oldminster disappeared as well. So you have this extraordinary, so there, there would have been one point in time in the beginning of the, or in the 11th century where you would actually be able to see the new cathedral coming up and and these other beautifully ornate and very, very rich churches all competing uh, against each other. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kat Jarman and we're talking about her new book, The Bone Chests, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons. And Kat, in the second half, I want to look at some of the people whose remains resided in these chests. But just one more thing before we do, and that a lot of the information that we know about these people comes from something called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So just tell us briefly what they are. Yeah, so the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles are a set of, of records of manuscripts. Uh, some of them date back to the 9th century. So a lot of the content really uh, dates back actually to Alfred the Great and his court. But it's a chronicle in the sense that it's uh, it records events that took place every single year. So it goes through chronologically, starting really with uh, origins of the Saxons, really. So the the arrival of these people from across the sea. And moving to record uh, the most important events, things like uh, rulers, you know, when they die and when they come in force, important battles uh, and so on. And some of them go, actually, I can't remember the end date now, but yes, yeah, so they go beyond the Anglo-Saxon period, really, uh, some of these. But it's, it's interesting because they're not sort of accurate historical records as such. So it's not sort of completely objective. And because they're really originating largely in the southwest and actually in Wessex, they're very much focused on that. So it's not an objective history of the whole of England. Some of the earlier parts are taking from other sources, people like uh, Bede's records, for example, 
but it does uh, a lot of the information does really match up to other accounts so we've got loads of events that match up to other records so it's sort of reasonably reliable but we have to sort of take a bit of a pinch of salt to the information that we get from it and so the first person i want to talk about is somebody whose remains are in what you've called the first chest and it's fascinating to go back so far that there's a, a former king of well, Wessex, not England, but that I have never heard of. But also, I I can't even have an attempt at pronouncing his name. So is it Cynegils? Yeah, Cynegils or Cynegils. Again, I mean, to be honest, there's not that much agreement on how these are pronounced. (laughs) People will uh, have all sorts of arguments. So I struggle. I recorded and narrated the audiobook on this. And I thought, oh, goodness me, I had an entire book of names like that. And you ask one expert and they'll say Cynegils and somebody else will say Cynegils. And so um, I go for Cynegils myself. So he was the the person that basically introduced Christianity to Wessex. So what else do we know about him? Yeah, I mean, that's really seems to be his uh, most significant claim to fame, really. Uh, He ruled, I think, from about 611, which is when he was crowned king of, of Wessex. And yeah, so at this point, that's, I think, the really important thing to say is that he, this was, a lot of Wessex was still pagan. And so we have this really interesting time that he comes into when he is uh, essentially agreeing to convert to Christianity. He was initially buried in Dorchester, actually, and uh, and founded a, a bishopric there. And then later on, this was all moved uh, to Winchester. So, so he's, I mean, that's his sort of most important role, I think. And and it was sort of soon after that that the first church appeared, quite possibly uh, through his son. And he has spent the rest of eternity in this chest with um, Ethelwulf, who is a king from significantly later on in history. So what do we know about him? Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, the chests themselves have these names on them, but they're not chronological. And I think that goes back a little bit to to the history of them. So you have this sort of slightly odd combination. So you have him with with someone like Ethelwulf. Um, Ethelwolf dates to the 9th century, really. So uh, he is the son of Egbert, who is in one of the other uh, chests. And he is a really interesting one because he is uh, the father of Alfred, so Alfred the Great. And uh, again, I mean, his, these stories are incredibly complicated and it's difficult to do them. And he's just as really in, in a sort of short amount of time. But some of the, the sort of important things is he worked, he had a lot, all of these kings really have had a lot of fights with other kingdoms. Mercia, for example, is one of the, the major sort of enemies. But he's he's sort of, I guess, one of the, the big things that he does is that he really managed to, to sort of lay the foundations for Alfred the Great. So although Alfred is the one that we, we sort of recognize usually, that most people know about as this sort of early Anglo-Saxon kings, his father did a lot to uh, essentially set the scene for him. Interestingly, he also had a lot of uh, connections to Francia, to the kingdom of the, of the Franks. And uh, he actually married uh, a princess called Judith, who was the daughter of Charles the Bald, uh, who was the king of the, the Western Franks. And that gave him these sort of historical ties to Francia, uh, which was all really, really interesting. But then they had this amazing family drama. So he had a lot of sons. There was a rebellion. So it's where the sons didn't really agree with his foreign marriage and tried to strip him of his kingship. So they were actually essentially rebelling against their own father. And um, and yeah, sort of, and then they, they sort of decide to agree again and all sorts of amazing family drama going on. 
I've leapt a little bit forward to him, but I think going back, I think this must be in Egbert's time, but correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously all throughout this time, the sort of main antagonists to the um, to the Saxons are the the Vikings. And while most people are aware of the, um, most people will be familiar with the, the famous raid on Lindisfarne, before that, there was actually a raid on Wessex, and I think maybe the first raid on, on English soil at Portland. So what happened there? Yeah, so that's really interesting because uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and all those sort of sources tell us that Lindisfarne is the first time we have a, a Viking attack, and that's what most people have heard of. That happens in 793. But according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that you asked me about earlier, it tells us that in 789, probably, or, so, or in, the, in the reign of, of Beatrix, who's one of the, the Wessex kings, an enemy appeared for the first time, and that was uh, the Viking enemy. So this is several years before Lindisfarne, and what the Chronicle and also another later source tells us is that three ships of raiders and a later addition says that they came from Hordaland in what is now modern-day Norway, arrived on the shores of Portland, and the Reeve, who was the sort of royal representative, rode down to meet them, thinking that they were peaceful merchants. Because actually nearby was a, a, an important trading settlement called Hamwick, uh, which is the forerunner to today's uh, Southampton. And uh, the men on the ship, these uh, pagan raiders, were absolutely not peaceful at all. So they slaughtered uh, the reeve and, uh, and any, all the men that came with him. So that is then recorded as the first pagan attack. And it's really interesting the fact that, that this comes up, that this is, is included, because as you say, this this main enemy that Wessex has is really the Vikings. It's these Northmen. And in fact, Alfred especially uses them and he uses this external enemy as, as a reason for him to partner up with other kingdoms, to sort of consolidate with power, because he says, well, we've got this common enemy. We've got to fight against them, really. So the fact that the first attack happens near Winchester, it happens in Wessex, in the southwest, may well have been something that he wanted to really emphasise. So so when I said earlier on that we have to take some of these uh, statements with a pinch of salt, it's interesting to note that everywhere all these other sources say that it's, it's in the north, it's Lindisfarne, but here is one source that comes out of Alfred's court, really, because that's when it was written down, saying that, no, no, it was all in the southwest, it was near Winchester, it was in Wessex, that's where they first hit. Leaping forward a little bit, um, one of the people that is in the chests is, again, somebody I'd never heard of, and this is Queen Emma. And surprisingly, I've never heard of her because it seems like she plays like a, a very important part in English history, um, right up to the Norman Conquest, and is married to a couple of the, um, the most famous kings of England as well. Um, so tell us something about who Emma was and the part she played. Yeah, I mean, I think Emma, I think it's disgraceful that lots of people haven't heard of her, and they absolutely should. She should be taught in schools and all sorts of things. So Emma was a a queen. She was twice a queen, actually, and the mother of of several kings as well. She comes from Normandy, actually. So she was also one of the ancestors of William the Conqueror. And in fact, he really used her as part of his sort of claim to uh, legitimise his conquest of England. But she arrived uh, right at the start of the 11th century as an 18-year-old girl to marry Ethelred the Unready, uh, who was then the king of England. And part of the reason, I think, was to sort of establish these international connections. 
So she uh, comes along and is married to Ethelred. They have children. And then Ethelred dies. And when he dies, the follow-up quite soon after, uh, Knut the Great, so the Danish king, becomes king of England. And one of the things he does is that he takes Emma as his wife. So that's the second time she becomes the queen of England. So she's actually a queen for a remarkable... So she dies in, I think, 1052. And uh, she's queen of England for decades. And she's very successful. She also They also have children uh, together, which becomes uh, an issue later on because of uh, you know, who's, who's going to inherit the throne later on. But she's very powerful and she has this brilliant um, ability, I think, to co-rule with Knut especially. And uh, she seems to be very well respected, very well loved. And then when she is the queen mother later on, uh, she uses her power and she sort of manipulates quite a lot uh, the children, the sort of ongoing rule. But uh, yeah, she's a really quite incredible character. And the fact that she's, her remains are in there, you know, her inscription is on there, is really unusual. Everyone else, you know, is a man, no matter if they're kings or bishops or whatever. So for a, a, a sort of pre-conquest queen to be given all that, that sort of prominence is very unusual. And just one more then, going right up to the um, to the Norman Conquest, um, William I has died. Throne goes to his son, William II, or William Rufus, as he's perhaps best known as, who is a character straight out of the straight out of the pages of Game of Thrones. Tell us how his bones ended up in one of those chests, because it's a good story. Yeah, so here's a really interesting one, and. Uh... As it is, it's one of those who's got an awful reputation, uh, but if you dig through the sources, some actually say quite nice things about him, but the vast majority seem to talk of him really badly. In fact, one quote that I really love is that is quoted as being, the evil king who indulged unashamedly in unspeakable debauchery. So he did all sorts of uh, awful things, apparently, um, including just being a, a big fan of parties. And uh, he actually had a great big hall built at Westminster and which is still used today for partially for his for his parties really and he was also uh, blamed for sort of introducing awful fashions and things but he never married uh, there's no evidence of his sexual orientation but he's usually uh, thought to have been homosexual which at the time was not very well accepted but he dies in unfortunately something that that happened to quite a lot of, of these um, early Normans he dies in a hunting accident in um, in the New Forest, which is just uh, near Winchester. And I, I want to put accident in sort of air quotes here, because it seems very unlikely that it was an accident. And uh, it's likely that it was a murder. He was because he was so unpopular and because there was a lot of rivalry for the throne. So when he dies, apparently uh, his body was just thrown onto a cart and, and dragged up to the cathedral where where he was buried, but without even the normal sort of ceremony that you would expect for a king. And um, and yeah, so he's the sort of latest one. Uh, he was really enigmatic, but yeah, stories around him, I, I describe more of them in the book, are, are quite quite something to read. So I've been talking to Kat Jarman. We've been talking about her book, The Bone Chests, Unlocking the Secrets of the Anglo-Saxons, which is out in the UK now from William Collins. Kat, thank you so much for telling me about it. No, my absolute pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.